there is a lot of dismissal around, oh, well, they'll, it'll, it will happen. It will happen. They'll get there. I loathe that phrase. I will say they'll get there. And everybody who says it means it in the nicest possible way. But all it shows is that there's just a gap. And if you know that there's a gap, all you want to do as a parent is fill that gap and help that child to be everything that they can be. And as I say, you know, I've seen it um, uh, straight up. And every child should have that help. Every child should be able to have that support. And they don't. And it is obvious. And anyone who says this, it isn't. Some things aren't. Some things will come later. But for most, that's a cop-out, I'm afraid. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Greetings once again, my fellow inhabitants of late capitalism. My name is James Mannion, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to yet another intriguing installment of the Rethinking Education podcast, Education's Critical Friend. This will be quite a short introduction because it's half term and I am soon to depart on a fossil hunting adventure. I used to share lots of feedback that I received on the podcast, and I haven't done this for a while, but I've had the most incredible feedback on our last few episodes, and I'd like to share some of that with you, if I may. The episode with Jazz Ampour Far elicited a veritable tsunami of praise, and that isn't even an exaggeration. People were writing entire Twitter threads about it, and it was just coming thick and fast for weeks. And that episode was also reviewed in esteemed educational journal Schools Week, where Robert Gasson, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, the CEO of Wave Multi Academy Trust, wrote... At nearly two hours long, I have to admit, I thought I might not find the time to listen to James Mannion's latest installment of the Rethinking Education podcast. However, once I started listening to his interview with Jazz Ampour Far, I couldn't stop. In this interview, Ampour Far takes us unflinchingly through her horrendous experience as a young person in the care sector. She explores how that has shaped her thinking and setting out the power of withness in a jaw-dropping almost 3,000 keynote addresses. Her views on how the education landscape appears to be watering the circle in the square, leaving the corners dark and dry, are all the more interesting because Mannion has given her the time to set out that personal backdrop. And that makes her suggestions for how we can reframe our language and practices to meet the needs of all our pupils truly poignant. Refreshing, honest, and at times brutal, the result is entirely uplifting. A must listen. That's quite the review, isn't it? The most recent episode with Chris Bagley also has elicited lots of praise. On Twitter, Paul Tayak, a longtime friend of the show, wrote that he really enjoyed listening to this on my travels today. I guess hard is change to come by due to long-held beliefs, inherited hierarchies, and unshifting paradigms. Cat Place, another friend of the show. Everyone's friends of the show, aren't they, if they're writing nice things on Twitter. She wrote, brilliant podcast, a must listen for all in education. You need to look at Wales to see what this change might look like. 
you're more than welcome to visit her amazing school, Jubilee Park, which is over in Newport, to see how they are developing their own curriculum for children to thrive in a transforming world. And I have it on good authority that that school was recently visited by Estin, which is like the Welsh version of Ofsted, except it doesn't seem to be horrible. And they were given no recommendations, which I think is like the best outcome that you can get. So Jubilee Park in Newport is where it's going on. And another lovely tweet from Sarah Dalton, another longtime friend of the podcast, who wrote, brilliant, just finished this and totally agree with everything you say, Chris. It all makes sense now why we have the system that we do and why it needs to change. And there was also some love this week from the archives from a very old episode with Priya Lakhani, where John Keohane, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who's the assistant director of the Southeast Wales Education Achievement Service, wrote, listened to Priya Lakhani talk about our inadequate education system on the Rethinking Education podcast during my walk this morning. Such common sense powerful thinking and deep thought-provoking questioning as a result inspired before 8.30 in the morning. And that's my promise to you, dear listener. I will always endeavor to make you inspired and possibly sometimes a bit confused by at least 8.30 in the morning, sometimes earlier. Depends when you start listening to podcasts, doesn't it? I also had an amazing email this week from a listener sharing more general feedback I won't name this person because it was in a private email and I'm not sure that they intended it for public consumption, but they wrote, thanks so much for all your inspiring content. It's changed my life, truly. It's meant I've turned around knowing my little girl wasn't a perfect school fit to retraining in forest schooling and beginning a long journey to a solution for her and others which is something else, isn't it? My goodness. I make all of these podcasts and blogs and whatnot, and when I hit publish, it often feels like I'm firing something out into an abyss because I don't often hear back from people as to how these things are received. But receiving feedback of this nature really means the world to me and to our guests. And so if you too enjoy these conversations, or indeed if you have some critical feedback that you would like to share please feel free to drop me a line. There are various ways to do so in the show notes. Sometimes education's critical friend may need a critical friend of its own. Finally, by way of an introduction, which actually isn't that short, is it? Fossil hunting can wait. I would like to also alert you to a think piece that was written recently by Valerie Hannon. Earlier this week, I had the great good fortune to attend a webinar that, would, that featured Valerie sharing her thoughts on the future school, which was hosted by my erstwhile colleagues at the UCL Center for Educational Leadership. I won't go into it in great detail now. Suffice to say that Valerie's work in this area is hugely impressive. She, by the way, is the co-author of a book called Thrive, and I had her co-author, Amelia Peterson, on a few months ago talking about that brilliant book. And that sort of set out some ideas around what they called pathfinder schools, these forward-thinking schools around the world who are pushing the envelope. And Valerie has since doubled down on that work, and I think there's a new book coming out. I found her talk to be unbelievably energizing and inspiring. I would love to get her on the podcast at some point soon. Um, so there's a link in the show notes to this recent think piece that she wrote. And if I can find a recording of this webinar, I'll link to that also. Okay, and so to today's guest. 
A few months ago, I received an email from Fiona Cuthbertson, a political lobbyist who wanted to know whether I might be interested in doing a podcast about special educational needs and disabilities, or SEND, as it's often known. I haven't ever really spoken with a professional lobbyist before, to my knowledge at least, and nor have I ever done a podcast specifically about SEND. Indeed, in my naivete, I wasn't really aware that professional lobbyists were even a thing. I think I've always just assumed that lobbying was done by people who work for particular organizations or charities or special interest groups who have particular issues that they're interested in or axes to grind. And so, sensing that I had lots to learn from Fiona and following a fascinating conversation while I had a dog walk one day, I acquiesced and here we are. Fiona Cuthbertson has been involved in politics for over 20 years and it started when she was at university and she got involved in the NUS, the National Union of Students, which you will soon hear more about. A former councillor and a former parliamentary candidate, Fiona now runs a public affairs agency where she works on a cross-party basis to help people get involved in the political process and to lobby on their behalf on a range of issues that affect people's lives, including SEND, but also covering things like business rates and also the ways in which competition laws affect small businesses and so on. Lots and lots of stuff. Fiona is also the author of a political thriller called Party Games, which centers around the dark arts of Westminster. This was a fascinating conversation for many reasons, and one from which I learned a huge amount, both about lobbying and also about SEND, Special Educational Needs and Disabilities. So, without further ado, I will now hand over to my recent conversation with Fiona Cuthbertson. I'll pick up my fossil hammer and bid you farewell until the next time. I hope you enjoy the show. Fiona Cuthbertson, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you very much for having me. That's my absolute pleasure. So so you are the first lobbyist I've had on the podcast, to my knowledge. I don't know, maybe not maybe lobbyists don't often out themselves. Um what's what do you do and 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 what is a lobbyist and, and how did you come to do this this work that you do? Okay, so a, a lobbyist basically helps people to get involved in the political world. So we help people to understand and navigate. Um, essentially, lobbyists provide government and opposition parties with the information they need to do a better job. Um, MPs often come from different fields in which they end up um, working. Uh, in the American system, if you want to become the Secretary of State for Defence, let's say, um, you have to actually show why that is a reasonable job for you to do. In the UK, it is totally down to the discretion of the Prime Minister um, as to who gets what job. And with that in mind, actually lobbyists do do very important work because if you have someone in a role who doesn't know anything, you want them to make the right choices regarding legislation, and that's where we come in. And, and as it goes, when I, I've been involved in politics since I was at university, um, but my lobbying career specifically, having my own business started um, just after I was 
head of product management for a web hosting company. Um, and I realized that there was a piece of legislation going through Parliament that would really affect the business. Essentially, it meant that if, if the government believed that a uh, web hosting company wasn't doing enough to combat fraud, they could essentially freeze the domain names of the business. They could take the uh, board members out of the business and they could fine them for the privilege. And I remember thinking to myself, this is mad. And actually, that is legislation. The Digital Economy Act did go through. So I thought, well, if that's if that's a big business like this, there are going to be lots of other, other businesses that don't understand how important politics is. And that's why I started lobbying. Um, and we work on behalf of um, education and small businesses. We've done some transport stuff around freight um, and a number of other different things. Um, clinical research, but obviously education is very much something that we're focused on at the moment. And um, that's why it's just so good to have this opportunity to talk about it today. Right. Thank you. So you're, you're opening my eyes. <laughs> Maybe I was just sort of, yeah, just a bit a bit blinded. You often hear, like, lobbying is a bit of a dirty word, isn't it? I'm sure you're sort of familiar with that. There's this sort of idea of of these sort of shadowy <laughs> rooms in the back offices where like oil companies, you know, sort of essentially find ways to to get to get politicians to do their bidding. Is that something that you that you come up against much in your role as a lobbyist? Um, well, I mean, in some ways I've been quite lucky because um I, I do I do quite nice stuff, I suppose. Um I mean interestingly, um Tobacco lobbying, for example, is is very much a no no, um, and and people who do it are are really you have public affairs agencies that actually won't work with the tobacco companies, um, astonishingly. So so it is very much around what you do. I think it's. I actually think that lobbying is very important because I mean, for example, when I I started working in the House of Commons in two thousand and one. For a lovely guy called Lawrence Robertson, who is um, a very good friend of ours and is actually now godfather to our son. Um, and he was at one point shadow energy minister, and he didn't have much understanding about energy, and nor did I, and it certainly wasn't the high profile issue that it is now. And so we had to go off and learn together, and we did, and it was great fun, but we using lobbyists and using people who actually sent us the information was very much key to that because otherwise we wouldn't have actually really known where to start um so you know it's it is important because because you you know you do find that um we can provide information to those who are interested or particularly concentrating on that area um, and and I and as I say I think it's really important mm, yeah I can see that I recently read that book um I don't, I don't know if we talked about this off air when we spoke a week or so ago it's a book um called why we get the wrong politicians oh, by right. Isabel Hardman and it's really interesting and <laughs> you know the, the the role that you're describing to like to help people to do a better job she does a, it's actually a really interesting book because although the although the the title of that book is sort of you know 
describing politicians as wrong. Um, it's a very empathetic book, and it sort of it paints quite a sympathetic portrait of the life of a politician and the pressures that they're under and just how much stuff they've got to do and how hard they work. And I can see that if there's somebody who's across the detail of, a, of an issue who can help them to make good decisions without having to, you know, spend all their weekend doing that. Um, you can see why that would be a really useful thing to do. Um, so that's really interesting. And so do you mainly work with ministers or is it more sort of targeted at civil servants or special advisors, or is it like a, a sort of an even mix of, of all different types of people? It, it totally depends on the issue. But just before I go on to that, just coming back to your point about politicians, I, I don't care actually whether or not a politician is, is hard left or, or further to the right. They've all gone into it with the best of intentions. I've stood as a parliamentary candidate, and again, coming back to my time when I worked in parliament, um, Lawrence himself, I am going to use, I hope he doesn't mind, but I'm going to use him as a, an example. He would get into the office at about this, at about one o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday, having done a constituency event of some sort that morning, traveling from Tewkesbury. He would be there until 10 o'clock at night because that at the time was the time of the final votes. After the final votes, he would eventually go home. Parliament would then start sitting on Tuesday. We would be doing uh, research stuff on Tuesday morning. Again, it would finish at 10 o'clock. Wednesday, the same. Thursday, he would finally leave the office at probably about 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock, depending on the votes and if whether or not he was actually needed to be there. Uh, because, of course, Parliament then, then finished a bit late, uh, a bit earlier than the 10 o'clock finish. Um, and then he'd do Friday constituency sitting. Saturday, he would do a constituency sitting um, uh, surgery as well. And then he'd finally finish at Sunday o'clock, probably around midday, when he'd finally go to the pub for a drink. And I don't care what anybody says. You do have the occasional MP who kind of doesn't take it seriously. But again, having stood as a, a parliamentary candidate, I was... 25 when I when I got selected for the seat in Preston. I was up and down for a year. Um, I was there every Saturday to Sunday, Friday afternoon, basically. Again, I, I, I had the opportunity to go up. And, and it was hard work. And that's the commitment that you need just to get there, let alone the actual commitment. And let's remember that at that point in time, because this is 2001, you didn't have the emails that you do now. So everything would come in from uh, a constituency. There'd usually be letters. You would get some emails, but it was just when the parliamentary network was kind of really coming online. So it was still mainly letters. And you'd have maybe one bag or two bags if, you, if it was a really heavy day. Now they get pounded with emails every single second of every single day and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram if they're on there and all the rest of it. And, and it's it's a very hard world. It's a very hard world and you are exposing your family to the abuse. Um, and so, yeah, I, I it is actually a little bit of a bugbear of mine, I'm afraid, when people kind of go, oh, they're, you know, just there for this or that. They're really not. They're really not. They're, they're there to do a decent job. Um, Sorry, I've forgotten what your other question was. Now, having no, 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 that's good. <laughs> that's great. Thank you. Um, you're, you're dead right, and and that's that's also a key theme of the book. 
uh, of Isabel Hardman's book um, about, you know, how can we make life or how can parliament be organized differently to make life easier for politicians? Because there are some certain rules that are in place that make it really, really hard for them to, for example, as you say, spend time with their families. There were quite a few interviews that she did for that book where people were saying that their spouses were really willing them to lose in elections <laughs> so that they could have their family life back. Um, and I, so the, I, I think, yeah, I think I think being being a parliamentarian's wife, you you have to understand a little bit that that's part of it. But I think the simple fact is just cut the abuse. That that would be a really good starting point because if you cut the abuse, you'd cut the amount of horrible emails and horrible letters and horrible things that they still have to spend their time going through or their staff have to spend their time going through. Because equally, let's remember that I didn't really leave Parliament. I mean, I was living in Westminster at the time and I was single. So it didn't really matter to me in as much as I didn't have that home life. But I was there the entire time. I saw everything. I saw everything that Lawrence saw with the parliament, you know, with respect to what happened in in the constitu in the constituency, and it's so so just cut the abuse. Your question, just coming on to that, was about who we work with. It depends on the subject. So if you're if you're going in an open door, then you're not really going to start causing um, an awful lot of mischief. I guess is the best way of putting it. Um, because you know that what you're doing is is aligned to what could potentially through legislation happen anyway, and you want to make sure that it's the best legislation possible. If you are biting a closed door, so for example, when I started on the subject of online and blended learning and, and essentially trying to show that that was actually a good way of helping students who were outside of mainstream to actually get an education. That was much more of an effort. So we really did kind of go a little bit around the houses and involve opposition MPs and, you know, ask them what their views were and, you know, su suggest ideas of, of angles that they could possibly take. And then eventually we did get online and blended learning into the guidelines of the Children and Families Bill, which was which was Keystone Consulting's first success. So I was quite pleased about that because obviously it's an important issue. That's really interesting. You, you told, you've absolutely opened my eyes to a new a new world. Thank you for that. Um, and so we're here today to speak about SEND mainly, special yeah. educational needs and disabilities, um, and I guess the lobbying and the, the, some of the work that you've been doing around that. But before we get into that, uh, as you know, I really like to get to know the person that I'm speaking to. And so we've heard a little bit about the work that you do currently, but I'm also interested to hear more about you and your life, really. And in particular, like to start with a question about your your own education. What kind of school did you go to? What kind of a student were you? How was your educational experience? Um, well, so it's interesting. So, so taking it back a little bit further, my parents met when they when they were in the army. So, mum was an officer at nineteen. So, I've always had a very strong work ethic shown to me. My father, um, he, you know, even from a woman who unfortunately had to leave the army when she had my brother at the age of 26. Dad then decided to leave the army as well because he wanted to go into business. And one of the reasons was supposedly that he wasn't going to have to move around so much. Anyway, that didn't happen. And we did end up moving around a lot. But again, that just showed me self-sufficiency, really. Um, I 
I will say that my educational career was a little bit mixed. Um, I did okay in my GCSEs, but my A-levels were pants, really. Um, and I ended up in Aberystwyth doing theology, which is what I wanted to do as a university degree. Uh, but at that point, I really did have to pull my socks up. The reason being that there were two degrees. Uh, it was a college that was attached to the university. Uh, the degree was from the university, though, the United Theological College. And there was the BTH and the Bachelor of Divinity. And the Bachelor of Divinity, you had to get better grades than the ones that I had. And I really wanted to do that because, ironically, my brother was actually doing the same degree at Oxford at the same time. Uh, and I didn't want to be, you know, um, inferior to him uh, in any way, shape or form. So I had to do seven different courses in my first year as opposed to six, including Ancient Greek. Um, and I did actually manage to pass and get onto the Bachelor of Divinity course. And um, when the building was sold and the college ended up moving to Lampeter, I was the only person who actually in the history of the college managed to achieve that. So I was actually really rather proud of the fact that I did achieve that because having been so utterly lackadaisical when I was at, when I was in my sixth form, it, it was it was nice to show myself that I could that I could do what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't want to become um, a vicar or a teacher. Um, not to anyone's surprise, I think. And um, so I ended up doing a master's marketing um, and then did a year in PR and then um, basically spent my the rest of my career bouncing around politics. I was out of the industry for a while to get a bit more of an idea about how the real world works, but it still it, it did pull me back and 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 I've always been involved in one way or another. Um, so yes. Um, and I ended up in politics equally when I was at uh, university because a current MP called Mike Wood, who was a very good friend of mine, um, he he basically said, come along to the NUS Wales um, conference. And so I, I did. And he said, you know, why don't you go for the national executive? And, you know, being again, being a bit naive, I was like, well, what's that then? And he was like, well, that's the governing body. And um, so I did. Um, and and that's kind of where it all started. So when Mike ended up getting the seat in Dudley, I was obviously very pleased because he's, you know, um, it, it's it's just funny how these things all start, you know, so young sometimes and people pop up in different places. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you for that. That's really interesting. And and the other question that I'm often really interested to ask is this idea of, of significant learning. And you sort of touched upon a couple of points there. But um, I'm interested in this idea that, that, that there are some there are some types of learning that's, that really shape you as a person, you know, that, 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 that change you in some way, something that's really substantial. I wonder whether as you look back over your life, either either in your educational um, part of your life or as you worked in, in PR or, in, or later in politics, are there any sort of key moments that stand out for you as really having sort of shaped you or changed you in some way? Yeah, um, actually, again, it, it, I will say it comes back to NUS because, um, again, one uh, Vaughan Gething, who uh, then ended up as Minister for Health in Wales and is now business, was the president of NUS Wales when I got onto NUS Wales. Right. 
And um, I thought to myself it'd be quite fun and interesting to become the deputy president, uh, which is a sabbatical, and so decided that I was going to go for this. And not really understanding the protocols of these things, uh, he very much had his team. Um, and whilst we got on, I wasn't on it because he was really quite new Labour. Um, and I was all nothing, really, but a bit conservative by background. Um, I said to him that I was going to go for this anyway. He set up someone against me um, and they really went for me and they absolutely took me down in that election. I mean, there was a policy annihilation, there was a personal alienation, everything. It was it was really quite exhausting and really quite eye-opening. Um, but after it bruised, I, I did say to him, why? You know, we could have just had a conversation, Vaughan. Why why did why did you take me out so utterly thoroughly? And his response was, well. You just never know. And I remember going away thinking to myself, well, that's very interesting because it shows you you really do need to prepare for everything in life because you just never know what's going to happen. And, and another side on that, when Jeremy Corbyn got his five nominations, I was in the car with my husband and uh, we heard this on the news. And David said, oh, well, you know, that's fair enough, but it, you know, won't go any further. And I was just like, it will. He's going to get that. He's going to get that leadership. And David looked at me, uh, you know, through the corner of his eye, obviously, um, quite quizzically. And he said, well, you know, why do you think that? And my response was, you just never know. And I have to thank Borton actually for that, because I feel that he has given me a lot of grounding in how I have how I've lived my life since, because I do believe that I prepare. And um, I do thank him for that, because I think he gave me, again, the kick that I needed in order to make sure that, that actually happened. Mm, thank you. That's really, that's a fascinating little tale. An assassination, you say. It must have been, it must have been quite difficult for you to go through that uh, at the time. You said that there were personal aspects to it as well as, as, well as professional. Is that fair to say? Oh yes, oh yes. I mean, it, it, yes, it was, it was, um, it was not, it was not a nice, it was not a nice campaign. Um, and uh, I remember equally saying to someone else, who I won't name actually, um, there's no need to, uh, you know, why, who, who I didn't expect to be part of it. And and I said, why, why didn't he say? Because it was just fun. And equally, it made me realise again, actually, that you you do you do have to be careful in politics. And if someone, you know, it's it's not a nice game. It's fun, but it's it's not. It's it's that people, you know, people will will kind of go for you equally if they if they do have if they're kind of caught ambition, I guess. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wonder whether that sort of you used the word fun a few times there. I wonder if if the, the the danger element is a part of what makes it fun in in the you know in a reshuffle. It's such a such a casual little word, isn't it? But in a reshuffle, somebody's entire hopes and dreams can be dashed on the rocks of despair, and it can take them years to recover if ever they do. You know, um, and so the, you know, there's something about the cut and thrust of it. 
that sort of that makes it very gossip worthy that makes it sort of it's why everybody is so gets so worked up about it and also to go back to your earlier point you were saying to cut the abuse you can sort of see why people get so get so worked up about about politics um, and it's partly because of the way that it's presented i think that, that we have these very sort of combative political interview styles where the, the it's almost like the, the politician is sort of assumed to be lying and that they're just sort of the, 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 the journalist's job is just to sort of expose them as a charlatan somehow and and also you mentioned all of the the social media stuff and you know we know that those platforms are literally designed for conflict aren't they or some of them more so than others but that's what keeps people on the app right that's what keeps the advertisers giving them the money is like eyeballs on the screen um and so you're playing a very a, a dangerous game i think just in its nature oh yeah i mean again because um as i say in in the 2005 election i i stood in preston and i do remember i mean it was um yeah, i got 12,000 majority down to nine and mark hendrick who um, I again, I, I knew from Parliament, we played a generally a very fair game. Um, and I remember someone, I can't remember which, which, um, which radio presenter it was, but basically got me on an interview. And it very much started off, well, you've lost that then, haven't you? And oh, da, 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 da. and I really did. And this was about three in the morning and we'd had, you know, we'd been getting another boat and these things are always high tension. I really did think to myself, oh, you just think you're chair of the Paxman, don't you? And, and again, I was only, what, 27 at that point. And I thought to myself, is this really necessary? Um, you know, I'm, I'm again coming back to the point. Most most politicians, it it is a cutthroat industry, and you know, again, people, there is only one prime minister, um, and getting to parliament is 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 it's a high stakes game. So so you have to have a per certain personality, but equally, as I say, you are you are only doing it for the good of the people, really. And you just, again, you know, it, you yes, it is. It is the way that things are sometimes portrayed. And you know, it's it's just you you you've got to give, you've got to be nicer. Nicer is a wrong word, but I think, as I say, if you can just cut the abuse, if you can just stop assuming that everybody's, you know, not doing the right thing for some reason. Um, yeah. You know, again, I I, I was a councillor. Um, I've known a lot of councillors. Again, people pop up as as this position on a council or that position. I've only actually ever known one, one that was done, and very quickly actually, um, for uh, abuse of planning um, or something like that, and ended up having to resign under such only one. Ever and you know again I became council when I was twenty four and I was out with one of my council friends about a week ago and so you know the, it's yes there are bad apples there are bad apples in every single industry but it's not it's not as it's not as universal as people like to make out but as you say things like social media it's all cut with the drama isn't it you know what can you I again I, you see things oh well I know X Y Z well really do you. Would you be really using this in sedentary kind of social media thing if you did really? Or are you just trying to create 
ticks, likes, whatever. Yeah, yeah, right. And that's the game that that everybody seems to be playing these days. I, I just read another really good book called How to Disagree um, by a guy called Ian Leslie. A really interesting book. He spends a lot of it talking about about negotiators because negotiators have to be very, very good at speaking, you know, and trying to build rapport with people who are mistrustful of them and who don't want to have a conversation with them particularly. Yeah. Um, it's a really interesting book. And, and essentially, like the, the, so towards the end, he talks about the golden rule. And the golden rule is that you have to recognize that the other person is a human. Yeah. You have to form a human connection. And if you don't recognize that, if you don't, if you don't sort of check in with the humanity of the person that you're dealing with then then you get that sort of road rage type uh, syndrome don't you where you're behind a screen and the screen whether it's a, a windscreen on a car or whether it's a computer screen is a dehumanizing barrier isn't it and it makes you forget that that, that those people who, who you're hating on you know like you say might have got into this game for, for the best of reasons that they are acting in good faith they have a different moral palette the, the other book that's been really influential i'm thinking was um the righteous mind i don't know if you've read that one um by jonathan Haidt or height i think you pronounce it um and the strap line is why good people are divided by politics and religion and it explains really convincingly, I think, why it is that we that we get these divides and that people are so sort of get so worked up that somebody could have a different <laughs> a different opinion to them. It's almost like we've got this this um, you know like a pandemic of like solipsism. Like everybody yeah. sort of thinks that their own their own worldview is the worldview, and that anybody who's against that must be act- or outside of it uh, must be acting in bad faith. Um, oh, absolutely. And then you see people who are happy to cancel someone else on on an opinion and then um, get very upset when they find that not everybody is is happy to listen to their opinion. And, and you know, it, it, yes, it's quite it's quite silly, really, because at the end of the day, um, we've all got to work together. And, and, you know, and again, this actually comes back to the way that, you know, I work in public affairs. Um you know, I, I can go to the Prime Minister or the Depart or the Secretary of State for Education and I can say, do you believe that every child who has special educational needs deserves an educational journey that they should be able to learn and and grow from? And they would go, yes, of course. And that changes nothing unless you actually have the legislation behind it. And I think yeah. it's very important that you work cross-party to actually achieve objectives um, and to make sure that you 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 actually make things a bit above politics because, again, it's very easy to score political points. And, and I think things like special educational needs and education actually need to be beyond that. It should be about the children that you're trying to help because mm. they whether, whether you score a political point or not, they are still not going to potentially get the funding that should be there. And, and you know, you, you whatever you do, that there are children out there. In Hampshire, they only have, they so EHCPs, so Education and Healthcare Plans, mm. are supposed to be, for a child who's, who's high needs SCN, that is supposed to be uh, assessed and, and approved within 20 weeks. In Hampshire they only do that for 1.5% of those uh, cases that come to them. I mean, 
So you're scoring political points and those kids are not getting the support and the early intervention that they need. And early intervention and ensuring that, you know, you have you have a you don't have a fragmented SEN system. Um, but you 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 score those political points. You don't you don't achieve what you're supposed to achieve for those children. You know, what's yeah. more important? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we've segued nicely into into speaking about SEND. Um, but before we do, if I may, can I ask you one more question about about yourself? I was just curious as to like um, if you're happy to share. Why is it that you? How come you didn't run again? It's because it sounds like like my understanding is that quite often when like when people are early in their career and they they they, they like the political party sort of puts a young candidate in a seat well, you you were saying that it, you know there was a 12,000 uh, majority that the other party had in that seat but i was just curious as to as to how come you didn't run again later on oh um well... <laughs> don't please don't feel the need to overshare that. I just, I was no, just... no 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 i mean it 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 just didn't happen um it's it's one it's one of those things where um it's either a bug that you have or you don't and 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 I would be lying to um say that it's it's not something that that doesn't pull me back on occasion so um again uh and I'm I'm dropping another name here um Ed Arga um and I worked in parliament together and when we were very very young I we had this bet that if um the first person who became a minister, um, he had to get me a bottle of port or I had to get him a bottle of whiskey. And um, obviously he won. And I was absolutely delighted. And uh, I remember watching him for the first time and sending this off um, to Parliament. To, and, and it did kind of make me go, oh. But I was so delighted for him, obviously, because he's brilliant. Um, and uh, it was it was one of those things that, that, does, that does pull you um but equally um it, again actually i will say it will have been the the abuse uh and and the fact that it is just um you 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 don't i don't i don't expect that everybody's going to um agree with me um i don't expect that everybody's going to like me bluntly um but it's one of those things where I think a little bit of a little bit of understanding and actually exchanging views and you'll both learn. Um, and I think it's become so kind of you did this and you did that. And, you know, because whatever constituent phones you or emails you and says, well, you didn't support me in that particular position that you took. So so you're not my MP. Well, someone else in the constituency did and you have you have elected that person to kind of give their best view on things and, and they're just not allowed to do it and it's and it's a shame and it and it just soured it slightly for me so I much prefer the fact that I can work cross-party and I can kind of just concentrate on the policy stuff and not particularly think about um about the you know uh, about the anxieties that you're you you do you know think about now when you're a politician but me you know yeah thank you for that yeah i can see i can see why and and you know like you say that if you if you if you want to get into that into the world of politics to make a difference um then it sounds like you're the, that you've been doing that on the work that you've been doing um in the areas that you've been that you've been working on um and so you know all, all power to you
Hello again, my cosmic cousins. If you're enjoying these conversations as much as I do, and you would like to express that thanks in some way, you can, should you feel so inclined, become a patron of the podcast in return for various benefits. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D. Alternatively, you can make a one-off donation, if you wish, at buymeacoffee.com forward slash repod. R-E-P-O-D again, and indeed I've now changed the settings so that you can in fact buy me a herbal tea, because caffeine makes me go even more weird than I already am. All of that said, I'm very much aware that times are tough, cost of living and all of that, and so if you aren't able to contribute financially, you can support the show in many other ways. You can leave a glowing review on iTunes, for example, which seems to be an important one in terms of getting the old algorithm to push it into people's feeds, sharing an episode with a friend or online, or just sharing some positive energy on social media, just like those lovely people did that I mentioned earlier, and you may even be mentioned on a future podcast. All such contributions and nudges, however great or small, are hugely appreciated and they help to ensure the long-term viability of the show. Further to this, my friends, if you are enjoying this episode and would like to keep the conversation going, I heartily recommend that you join the Rethinking Education Mighty Network if you haven't done so already. You can do so by visiting rethinking-education.mn.co or by downloading the Mighty Networks app and searching for Rethinking Education. We now have daily posts and the community is really starting to come to life at the moment after a period of winter hibernation. It's really lovely to see some new names on there getting involved in the discussions. So sign up and get involved. It really is a most heartwarming place to be and it's much lovelier and more life-affirming than that Twitter, which now seems to be mainly full of contrarian libertarians and attention-seeking merchants of rather tedious outrage. Thanks to our friend Mr. Musk. So don't play that game. Sign up for this game instead, especially if you would like a lovely dose of positivity to drop into your inbox once or twice a week. Now let's get back to our fascinating conversation with Fiona Cuthbertson. So, so, so let's get into SEN. So, so, so I often get written to by by people asking to come on the podcast. Um, and I very rarely um, take, I, I, I've got a big long list of people that I want to invite. Um, but you exposed <laughs> you exposed a, a gap in, in the topics that we've covered to date on this podcast. We haven't really focused explicitly on SEN before. Um, and, and I immediately thought, well, that just needs to happen. And then we chatted and I, you know, I, I'm very convinced that you, that you have lots of very worthwhile uh, information to share on this. And so, and, and, but, and just to be really clear at the outset of this part of the conversation, I am absolutely an outsider. So please consider to me to be a rookie, right? And you suddenly yes. go, this is like SEND 101, if you like, just okay. to sort of walk me and the listeners through this, through this, this world, there was a green paper, that was published earlier this year that we might get into. But let's just start by just sort of talking about the pandemic and, and coming out of the pandemic. Um, and in, in this period of time, when is it that you that you picked up this issue of SEND and why is this something that's that's close to your heart? Um, well, I again I will I will declare straight up that um my my daughter uh has uh she's autistic. Um she is um 
she's had a lot of early intervention, which I think has helped her massively. Uh, well, I don't think it, I know it. And, and I just understand how fragmented the system is and how uh, ch children with SEN process the world differently. Um, it doesn't make them bad. In the days when I was at school, it was the awkward kid or the stupid kid or the monk, the, the clown in the room or whatever it was. Whereas, you know, now you'd probably have a diagnosis for each of those children. And I think that, I mean, you can see from people who are in the public eye who have SEN that, um, they can also contribute to society. But the frightening thing is that I think it's only 18% of young people with autistic tendencies, diagnosed, that is, um, actually have jobs. And I think that's awful because if I if I look at my own child and I think, well, you know, that's pretty harsh stats. Um, mm. I'd like to improve those, please. <laughs> um, and, you know, as I say, so I've, uh, my husband and I have very much bought from her. We, she got diagnosed when she was very young, but um, that again is because we were very on it. Um, and it was something that um, we just pursued and pursued. Um, and I think it's, it's a crime that basically these kids are not having the intervention and the early diagnosis because many have already fallen behind a lot a, a, a long way from their peers before SEN needs are even identified because early uh, early years is the least well-funded phase of education and also people are likely to say oh well you know boys will be boys or girls will be girls or you know everybody develops differently they're just a late developer um and and you know, if you're a busy working mum or a busy working dad or you've got other chaos in your life or you're wondering or you're a single parent um, and then you think to yourself, oh, it can resolve itself. And then you just end up, you know, and 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 the gap just gets bigger and bigger. So so our work um, really does focus on um, early intervention, early diagnosis, um, as I say, making sure that there is not a fragmented system, help for those children who are outside mainstream education and actually just sorting out funding fundamentally um, because it's currently provided by local authorities at a discretional rate um, and the average local authority uh, only provides 11% of their school budgets for SEN and then it isn't, it isn't ring-fenced so it, it can end up being very diluted um, and a question, each each child who has nominal, uh, well, should have a nominal £6,000. This is for a child that doesn't have an EHGP. So Lillian would fall into this category. Mm. And um, it's not anywhere near that. There was a question put down by Baroness Ritchie that disclosed um, the, the actual allocation of funding um, alongside how many children it was supposed to cover and you do the maths and it's less than £4,000 a child and it's falling considering the increased number of people who are being diagnosed um, and and where it's supposed to go, and what it's supposed to cover, especially considering, you know, inflation and all the rest of it. So it's only going down unless something changes. 
Um, so it's just one of those things that that does need to change. Yeah, right. So, yes, thank you for that. So, so, so your daughter, as you say, has uh, was identified early on in her life, and and there was early intervention. And I think yeah. you used the word thriving when we spoke last week. You said that she's yeah. doing really well, which yeah. is great to hear. And but you're saying that the, the 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 sort of the landscape, if you like, the provision is very patchy and sparse. You were saying, this, did, 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 can you just describe, explain what you mean by a discretion, discretional rate? Does that mean that it's not? Set by government, it's up to the it's up to the local council to use at their discretion how it's, much they allocate to schools. It it is so basically each each local authority gets their school budget, which is basically the money that the government provides for them. But then each of the local authorities have the um, have the ability to kind of say, okay, well we want to send we want to spend such and such an amount on SEN funding. And uh, I think it's 75% of the local authorities spend between, I think it's about five and 22% or something of uh, funding on SEN. Uh, yeah, 78% of local authorities between five and 15, that's it. And you, you just think to yourself, there are a lot of, there are a lot of students in, that need to be covered with respect to those local authorities funding and and that just makes it a complete postcode lottery um, and also it's not just about the education itself um, it's about so you know whether or not a child might need a taxi to school whether or not the child would be able to function if they just had a little bit of extra support from a mentor all of those kind of things they all cost money and and it's and it's down to local authorities. Whereas if if the schools uh, were actually just given, if the if the money was given straight to the schools and they just said, right, you school have that number of children who have SEN, we want to provide them with a notional six thousand pounds per kid. This is your money. You know, now it's up to you what you do with it. But this is your money. This is how much you get, and this is where it needs to be ring fenced. And if someone comes and they basically investigate or um, check what you've done with that money, you have to have spent it on something that's around SEN. And that's just not the case at the moment. And it's, and as I say, it's the kids that miss out. Mm, yeah, I see. Thank you. And so, and so this is, this is what was happening prior to that. So, so, so this green paper was published earlier this year um, and and I see that you you welcomed broadly the, the the recommendations of this green paper. What is this green paper um, setting out, and what is being proposed? Yeah, so basically they want to um, establish a new national send and alternative provision system. So that's going to hopefully show that there are going to be consistent standards for how needs are identified and met. Um, creating local send partnerships and that's going to be around trying to say that people are going to locally have the ability to provide education for their children and and essentially there's going to be an inclusion plan um, and and provision of specialist support locally um, then you've got parents and carers they are going to now be able to have an informed preference for a suitable placement um, but the change there is going to be at the moment, if someone has an EHCP, they can say, I want to send my child to this specific school. Um, and and basically, uh, it's going to change. Essentially, the local authority is going to drive that a little bit more. 
Um, the introducing of a standardized and digital EHCP process and template to minimize bureaucracy. Um, that's very interesting because essentially that's kind of, again, coming back to this lack of fragmentation within um, the SEN process and saying that essentially EHCPs, which are so, um, so different depending on which local authority you go to, are actually going to have to have some kind of standardization. Um, and then also uh, resolving disputes. So basically, um, if someone has a problem regarding EHCP, uh, whether or not the child has an EHCP or, or it's been denied that the kids will actually, um, whether or not it, it, the, the redress can actually happen in a, in a quicker way. Mm, right, the problem, okay. The problem, the problem with all of it, it's all very good words. It's all very good words. But the point is, what does it actually mean? The only one that is actually... Um, that, that can actually be pinned down is the standardized and digitized digitized EHCP process, which would be magnificent. And the technology is actually out there with Full Spectrum, who we work with, ironically. Um, so, so that's brilliant. Um, but equally, yeah, I can see what you mean. The rest of it sort of sounds great, but it's kind of vague, is it? A new national system creating local partnerships like inclusion plans for parents and carers it all sounds lovely but it's all it does sound kind of woolly it, it is so it's basically then you need to think about the guidelines around this so this is one of the questions that on behalf of uh, another client of ours the Nissai Virtual Academy we were talking about um, with the consultation you know how are you going to ensure that if you're creating new send partnerships that they include alternative providers like the virtual academies and um, if you're actually going to have the alternative provision system how are you going to make sure that those standards are there because at the moment if you actually look at Ofsted for example Ofsted are very much based on, they base their system on um, grades. So if you achieve X, Y, Z grade, that's great. You've gone through the you've gone through the sausage factory completely satisfactorily, and it's all great. If you haven't, well, yeah, we need to try and make sure that you're you're kind of dealt with a little bit but but we're not going to concentrate on that because you're not going to help us achieve our our inspection results that we need um and until you actually change the system a little bit so every child's journey matters um and every school is also judged on uh their send provision uh then then you're you're always going to be fighting for losing battle because those schools who are increasingly pinched regarding resources and time and all of that they're they're going to go well what's going to help us to get more money what's going to help us to get more uh support well if it's not the fact that you know you're actually providing a really decent service for those kids with with um non with with special needs um, and you can do it on five thousand pounds or four thousand pounds. Well, they're not going to. They're not going to kind. Of, the local authority is not going to go. Oh well, you know, we'll just throw an extra grand at you. Um, and that's another reason why, again, coming back to this change on um, on the actual funding process would would really would just be really changing for the entire industry. I think.
Mm, okay. And so what so at the moment, is there not a requirement for Ofsted to report on or even to look at SEND provision when they're forming a judgment? I mean, I don't think that's quite the case, is it? It's not that it's they're not, not looking at it at all. It's not quite the case. So if you actually, if you listen to what, what um, education ministers say now, and again, this is only relatively recent, they will say, well, you know, a, not, a, a school will not be able to achieve uh, an outstanding result unless they can prove that they provide decent uh, SEN provision for those children who need it. Again, no. What, what does that mean? You know what? What does what does that mean when it comes down to the bit? Does that mean that they're going to that they're going to get any more money? Does that mean that they're going to get any more help? Or does that mean yes? I mean, of course, you want a school to be outstanding, every school to be outstanding, because that's the way of of making sure that the kids get the best education they can get. But you know, again, in in my opinion, it's just a little bit woolly. What you actually need is is for there to be a real way that standards can be shown. And so, for example, you know, if if a child is going to that school, how do you know that that child is going to get the support that they actually really need? Because the other interesting thing is that a lot of people who end up in alternative provision have SEN. Uh, alternative provision is usually kind of more around when a child has been, um, they've had behavioural issues or or there's been an issue around um, yeah, that that kind of thing. Well, it might be driven by SEN. And actually, a child that is just um got SEN needs a different type of education to a child who actually unfortunately has gone down a bit of the wrong path and and has found themselves in in petty crime, you know, maybe just because they they got on with the wrong crowd and therefore they need help to get out of the wrong crowd, you know. It's it's a totally different thing. It it's totally different skill set and all of that. So so you really do um, you need to make sure that the education is actually appropriate for the child. So 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 I think it would be useful in a few moments. That there are a number of sort of areas that we've covered, and I think it would be good to sort of to recap them in terms of what's happening now. And what do you see as 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 what what needs to happen? First of all, regarding sort of early intervention and early diagnosis. Um, around funding, uh, you just mentioned uh, Ofsted access to to EHCPs, um, to education health EHCP education healthcare plan. Yeah, so ed- education and healthcare plan. Basically, they are relatively new. They they were they were put together. I mean, the the other problem that you have in politics often is that different departments work as a silo. And therefore, you'll have something going on with one, uh, with one, with one department, and it's right. not necessarily, it's not necessarily um, related to what's going on in a totally different department, even though it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, education and healthcare plans were essentially around um, providing that link between the various different uh, people who need to be involved when when a diagnosis of of high uh, needs um, happens Uh, because you know you so for example an autistic diagnosis you need 
the GP, you need Senko, so that's special educational needs kind of within the uh, within the school. You need a psychiatrist, you need a psychologist, you might need a speech and language therapist, you need behavioral sports, you need health workers, you need all of a range of different people. Now, the EHCPs are so different depending on which local authority you are you are working with um, and as I say in some areas there's such a delay in assessment so 27% of families have to wait more than six months even though the deadline is 20 weeks um, and there are 15 local authorities that produce fewer than 25% of their plans within 20 weeks I've mentioned before Hampshire is only at 1.5% uh, Tower Hamlets is at 5.5%. Stoke-on-Trent is 19.1%. So it's not as if it's one particular area, either. It's all across the country. Um, and so, again, whilst it's all very great words, then there needs to be much more of a focus on, on actually um, just getting these things through, just helping the local authorities to do their job um, and providing them with the with the funds to do so, basically. Yeah, I see. Okay, so so we'll come back to recap EHCPs in a moment, but th th thank you for that. Um, so there's sort of there's issues around consistency of practice. There's also some issues around you know like how long it takes for for them to be approved and what have you. Um, and and the patchy the patchy um, you know yeah patchy provision uh, yeah. around the country. And mm -hmm. then and then the other thing the other area was sort of around around um, transition. For helping young people with SEND um, with mental health issues to to transition between between schools. So let's take them in turn. But first of all, can we just come back to the to the green paper as a as a lobbyist who's sort of involved in all this stuff? Can you please just teach me in this in this SEN one hundred and one or even politics one hundred and one? What is the difference between a white paper and a green paper? And what phase are we at? There was a consultation, wasn't there, on on the this green paper earlier this year? Can you explain what the difference is, please? So uh, a green paper is usually thrown out when they just um, want to have some idea about the policies that they're making. Um, so basically, it's it's around ideas that the uh, that they have. Um, it's actually it, it's very good that there was a consultation on it. In as much as that isn't that isn't often the case, it has happened, but it's not kind of something that's that's usual. Um, White paper is regarding future legislation. So basically, they're, they're published as kind of more of a, a real guide as to exactly what, what's going to be what's going to be kind of thought about. And it might even include a draft version of a bill. Um, legislation has to go through both houses. So it has to go through the House of Commons and through the House of Lords. It can start in either place and that doesn't matter, but it will be presented if it is a government bill by the relevant minister who is um, basically going to stand up in Parliament and essentially say, this is why it need, this particular piece of legislation needs to happen. Um, then once it's gone through its second reading, the first reading is kind of just the introduction. It's, there's nothing really to that. Second reading, it kind of goes... Um, into much more discussion um, and you have uh, essentially people kind of arguing on both sides 
Um, so you'll have those people who say, oh, yes, you know, it it, it should absolutely happen. Um, and those who kind of go, oh, well, actually, I disagree with this because of X, Y, Z. Um, a government bill will tend to go through depending on the majority of the government. So what, what you can have, um, obviously, and, and you saw this uh, certainly with Theresa May, uh, various policy decisions that she made, uh, that, that they can be voted down. That's, that's a big defeat for the government. If that happens, it's not good. Um, so that was one of the reasons why in the 2019 election that the fact that, you know, Boris Johnson at the time had such a large majority, it meant that even if people basically rebel, um, he will he was still likely to get legislation through. Once it's passed through there, it goes into committee. Committee stage, basically, there's a convened committee of MPs. So basically, a number of MPs sit on the committee. Um, and that reflects the strength of all parties in the House. Um, and essentially, it takes place in the committee rooms. There are a number of committee days. At that point, um, basically, people make changes to the legislation. So those are amendments. And that, that process can go on for quite a while, depending on both the size of the bill and the parliamentary time that's been associated with it. Um, it can add these provisions can add add, uh, add amendments or they can take amendments away, uh, but it has to be close to the subject matter. So you couldn't say that there was a bill on, let's say, um, education and then, you know, say that you were going to um, out, out, outlaw cars on roads or something. It has it has to be something that's that's quite um, that's quite specific to to where you're actually going. Um, so you need to kind of have a think about that. Um, and then report stage, basically, uh, only amendments are discussed. Um, so if none, no more are tabled, then that's that's purely formal. Uh, but amendments can change what's what's already in the bill. Um, and then after that, it goes to third reading, which is another general discussion. Um, and both houses, it, as I say, it has to go through both houses and both houses have to agree on the text. If it doesn't, if they don't agree on the text, so let's say the House of Lords have a very differing opinion as to what should be in a bill, then it kind of ping-pongs between the two. So you'll find um, you'll find the bill kind of going from one to the other until either the, the Commons get the Lords to back down or the Lords get the Commons to change something. Right. So it is it is it is a long process. Yeah, sure. And and, and the green paper is kind of the start of that process then. The green yes. paper is the initial consultation. And so given given all of those stages that you just described, um and thank you for that. That's really helpful. Um and, and the fact that we are sort of two years, I think it's almost three years to the day, isn't it, since the last yeah. election. So we're yeah. sort of two years out from the from the from the furthest away possible date for for the next election how likely is it do you think that 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 there's going to be any legislation passed on SEND in this parliament i think that is going that's a very good question i think that's entirely going to depend on uh how much of a imperative it is the problem that you have at the moment is that there is a cost of living crisis um, you know, obviously there was a, a statement by the Home Secretary just 
about an hour and a half ago regarding uh, the migrations uh, over the channel. Yeah, I heard that. You've got, you've got, you've got a lot of stuff going on. Um, and and basically, that's why, again, in some ways, it's down to me and mine uh, to to carry on uh, fighting for this as a particular issue. Because, again, you know, all of these fluffy words in the green paper are great, um, but bills can be pulled, things can be changed. A week is a long time in politics. And, and if you find that, you know, more time passes before something happens, well, surprisingly enough, it just never does happen. And, and you know, the, the amount of times, um, biz, uh, an interesting, everyone knows about Prime Minister's Questions and Prime Minister's Questions is all very great. Um, and I first went to Prime Minister's Questions um, when Neil Kinnock called Margaret Thatcher a silly old bag. It was, uh, I was I was in the chain, I was in the gallery there. By me. One of, one, of, one, of my, one of my father's friends who is an MP, uh, Ian Twin, he took me and um, it was brilliant. Um, and and so that's always kind of a, the height of everything, the very exciting one. Actually, one of the most interesting ones, I personally think, is uh, questions to the leader of the house, which happens on a Thursday, um, because you have MPs popping up and some of them will ask stuff about um, their local constituencies, and what's going on there, but also, you know, you have people popping up and asking about various issues around education or health or whatever it is. Um, and it's basically, it's, it's you've, you've got to keep the pressure up because if you don't, then as I say, time will move on, nothing will happen, but Fangam Debonair, um, who's the current shadow leader, you know, the amount of times that she has stood up, actually, and I will say, and said, so when is this coming back to the House? Or when is that coming back to the House? You know, this has been delayed three or four times now. Um, and and you just kind of go, well, if that's, you know, if that's the case with current legislation, making sure that something that's just a little bit woolly, it, it really is going to be, it really going is it's so important, but I don't know is the honest answer, and and that is one of the things that is 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 my duty and the duty of people who who want to push this issue are are is down to us really. Right, and do you get the sense that there's much of an appetite for this within sanctuary buildings, as it were, within the DfE? Yes, there is, because every because again, coming back to my point around SEN, and if you if you turn around to anyone in the DFE and said, is SEN important, they would turn around and say yes. But it is basically it's about getting that, it's about getting that on paper um, where there is actually a behavioral change. That's that's what you need, uh, because otherwise it uh, it's just words. Yeah, and and one of one of the things that um, politi politicians are very good at, and I would say this both um, politicians who are elected and and lobbyists, we're all very good at spewing words, and we're all very good at making points and saying, you know, and it, and it is about actually making the change. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So, so I was just looking up some stats um, while we've been talking. It says here that it's this is on a on a government website that the the number of pupils uh, identified with SEND has increased by fourteen percent since twenty sixteen. Yes. Um, 
Which is quite a, a big increase, isn't it? 14% in the space of six years. And, and it sounds like this is something that was happening before the pandemic. Have you got any sense as to why this is? Again, it's, it's actually coming back to the point of um, where a child was just disruptive or a clown or whatever. Um, there are reasons sometimes for behind um, why a child is behaving or or um, having the meltdown that they are or whatever, and and there is there is an increase of of people who are being diagnosed, um, and and I think that's great. Uh, but equally, as I say, there is a lot more to do because for every child that is being diagnosed and every child that is getting some help, um, there are a number of kids who are not. There are 15,000 children with an education healthcare plan who are still waiting to receive the provision specified in their plan. And only 4% of those people with young, young people with AHCPs often end up with jobs. So it indicates yeah. that what's going on at the moment doesn't actually necessarily improve outcomes for those with SEN. So you need to have a think about, as I say, just about the entire process and not just about saying, oh, well, you know, we've given you a diagnosis now. Uh, that's that's it, job done. Well, no, not really, because yeah, right. whether or not that child has a diagnosis, it means the parents have something to hang their hats on, which is great. But if they if nothing changes and they're still getting the same education as any other mainstream child is, then then nothing changes for that child because they they are still not getting the provision that they need. Yeah, yeah, sure. So so do you think that it's I, I suppose that an obvious way to look at that increase would be like to ask, is is it because there are there are literally more young people with so 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 it says also on this website that the, the most common type of need for those with an EHCP is autistic spectrum con, uh, yeah. condition. And for those uh, who need SEN support but who don't have an EHCP, it's speech, language, and communication needs. I suppose one way to frame that question would be: is it that there are more young people with these problems with these conditions in the case of autism or with these speech language and communication needs or is it is it that special needs coordinators have got better at identifying them do you think i think it's a bit of both i mean i think i think that though again those who actually work within scn um, are highly skilled they really do know their onions they 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 want to do the best job um, that they can for the young people that, that come across their their path. Um, there's there's absolutely no doubt about that, and therefore they will use their skills in order to try and get the provision that they need. Um, and equally, what you find is that you know they will really try and help the parents to to navigate the system. But the 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 forms are long; they're incredibly complicated. They in some ways they dehumanize your child a little bit because they you know you know that in order to try and get that help you're going to have to put the absolute worst case scenario and you know this is the worst case scenario that you have to look at about the person or one of the people that you love most in the world which is heartbreaking so and that's part of it but so you you do the the, the parents need help to be able to do that the SEN people who are providing that help are providing that help but 
they're, they're, they're just not given the support, they're not given the finance, they're not given the help. Often they might not even be given the training um, or certainly extended training. It's it, again, you know, whilst everyone's kind of talking about the mainstream, it, it, in the same way with everything, you know, if you're talking about whatever, you will you will end up talking quite a lot of the time about the majority. Well, these are these are still compared to compared to neurotypical children. They're they're still in a minority. They're an important minority, and you know those those kids are going to not potentially end up working so they'll end up costing the government more money it's a total false economy in every single way but they will you know that will be the reality of it um and i and i just i just think it's heartbreaking for the children and also heartbreaking for the people who work in sen because they're just trying their hardest to try and make sure that the kids get the best that they can Yes, and, and so and so just to just to um to you were talking about the numbers there just for the benefit of listeners. So there's a million and a half young people in England with yeah. with SEN, which yeah. as you say is about sort of 16 percent. Yeah. Um, of those, uh, um, it seems it, it, here it says three hundred and fifty thousand have got EHCP plans or statements of special educational needs. Um. And so you were saying that four percent of those go on to work. So thank you for that. I've I've, I've got a sense now. <laughs> I feel like I've got a sense of the scale of the problem and on also the nature of the problem. And so I think it might be useful if if it, if if it's okay with you just to sort of to recap the the things that we've talked about under those headings that I mentioned earlier. Like yeah. if if for, for each one, if I give you a heading and if you sort of say like what's happening currently or what's not happening currently, and what would you like to see? Yeah. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so first of all, um, early intervention and early diagnosis. Well, the problem is, as I said, that um, the first 1,001 days of a child's life are the most important, um, and especially for a child with SEN. And there is just a long process that needs to be undertaken for any child to get a diagnosis. So there is a process there, so go that. But it's so long that often um, the children are losing time, basically, and and equally, if if the child's life in any way is chaotic in the background, um, then then it may not be as effectively, it may may not happen as effectively as it should. So it it just needs to be smartened up. Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so so. I mean, so so you mentioned that the first a thousand days, roughly, of a child's life, yeah, and that's just doing my maths. So that's sort of like not to three, nearly. Yes, I mean, I mean, are SCN issues often particularly evident when they're only three? It's like if it's like speech and language and communication, would that not generally sort of become evident later on? No, and and the reason and the reason why I can say that so, uh, it, I mean I am using a personal example now. Uh, in two thousand and sixteen, I was diagnosed with cancer, and um, basically I was told it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and I was told after that that there was no chance that I was going to have another child. Now, uh, twenty months ago, uh, a little boy popped into the world. 
um and wow. um, he yes and and he was a great surprise um such that lily who'd always wanted a sibling didn't believe us when we told her that i was pregnant because obviously it was very much um you know fiona can't have any more children so you know and again being being who i am i was just like well i'm sorry there's nothing i can do here the reason why i'm saying this is because it's very evident really that he is neurotypical and he's only 20 months his language is there you know he can communicate uh he is engaging and he smiles and he he really is just straight down the line lily as i say she is a brilliant brilliant child she has come on so far she is actually i think um, one of those kids who has had more barriers and, and more strength to her for it because it's given her a strength of character um, that other children may not have because she's had to struggle a little bit further um, to get where she is, but she absolutely holds her own. Um, but she did, there were there were tells quite early on um, and as I say, her her autistic tendencies are milder compared to some uh, who I know. So yeah, they 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 can they can be seen, and and I think that there is a lot of dismissal around. Oh, they'll it'll it'll happen, it'll happen. They'll get there. I loathe that phrase. I will say they'll get there. And everybody who says it means it in the nicest possible way. Mm. But all it shows is that there's just a gap. And if you know that there's a gap, all you want to do as a parent is fill that gap and help that child to be everything that they can be. And as I say, you know, I've seen it um, uh, straight up. And and I know how much how much Lily's come on and how important it is for her to have the help that she has and and I have to shout out to the people who provide her with that help because I yeah. think they're amazing so you know uh, but but it's it's every child should have that help every child should be able to have that support and they don't and it is obvious and anyone who says it, it isn't some things aren't some things will come later but for most that's a cop out I'm afraid yeah, sure. Thank you for sharing that, uh, and for, congratulations on uh, on your uh, most recent child. That's that's great to hear, and I hope that the cancer is is uh, behaving itself. Um, and is, is that the case? Are you? Are you? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 it's it's one of those things where um, there's an idiosyncrasy. It it isn't cancerous. It's it's a it's an active. It's an active site of infection that we can't quite get rid of, but it's not non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And uh, again, my oncologist is very on it. So, so, so again, I'm very lucky with that. Um, but uh, no, that was that was not a very happy time. Um, but we've come out the other end, and as I say, you know, we're very lucky. Yeah, thank you. That's good. That's good to hear. And so, and so, you would imagine to go back to the early intervention and early diagnosis thing. You would imagine that teachers are on the lookout for this, right? That the early years practitioners are trained to to look for the signs that young people aren't developing, that are, they aren't neurotypical, or that they might be neurodivergent in some way, and that and that the special needs coordinator will be there to to allocate resources and to respond accordingly, but. From speaking with you just now, and also having spoken with a number of other parents over the last few years, 
it seems like the emphasis is much more on the parents and carers to sort of to fight for a diagnosis often that, that they sort of that they it's, it's often feels like it's a battle to have to to have it recognized and as you say people often say oh they're fine you're worrying too much you're being neurotic you're just being over overly you know molly coddling or whatever language that people might use in you know in a in a in a, in a well-meaning sense as you say uh, is that is that fair to say that that this is something that parents and carers often sort of have to struggle to have their child's needs recognized Oh, 100%, 100%. Um, and, you know, I I know someone at the moment who is struggling um, to get provision for their child. And it's heartbreaking, really, because, um, again, it's a, it's a child who would do so well if they actually just had the provision that they needed. Um, and they're being thwarted. And, and, you know, both parents are, you know, in, incredibly able um, and 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 know how to work the system, and I'm sure that this this chap will get what he needs eventually. But you know the fact that the fact that the fight is still there. Um, I understand that basically there are limits of cash, and that you know things you you can't you can't just say oh well you know everything for everyone. I mean. That that way madness lies and a massive great debt for the people who are coming next. And it's an ever increasing circle, you know, of of someone kind of going, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll rob people to pay Paul. And then, you know, Peter still needs paying and Paul needs paying and all of that kind of nonsense. But but you 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 do need. And actually, if you just smartened up the system, you'd be able to find efficiencies if there was a standardized EHCP that was digital and I know that that's what they've said but they actually actively found the technology in order to do that if they actually helped children to have the early intervention that they need then there would be able to be um, kids who will then be able to work and pay back the exchequer for that early intervention as opposed to ending up on benefits if you did have help in alternative provisions like um, online and blended learning, as opposed to assuming that every child who is out of school has a behavioural issue and needs to end up in a PRU, you will resolve issues and you will end up with people again who will be able to work and have fulfilled lives. You know, it's it's there are efficiencies there, and and you know people have to be a bit bold and they have to kind of go. Actually, you know what? This is this is how we're going to change the system and and yes you need local discretion and every child and every area is different you know and you have different needs but but equally if you can have some kind of standardization with that then actually all you get is better results so with regard to early intervention and well really really about diagnosis you were talking about this tension that appears where parents can see that their child may not be developing in the same way or at the same rates that other children are, and they might be concerned. And they say, we want to have an assessment or we want to have an EHCP or whatever it might be. And then there's this tension. And you were saying that some parents sort of have to fight for it. And some of them are maybe better at fighting for it than other parents. Yeah. Is that is that really, is that tension caused by a lack of funding to the local authority, do you think that, they, that there's only so much money to go around? Every time they issue an EHCP, that takes some money out of a finite pot, and there's 
lots of kids, as we've heard, with uh, with these additional needs. And like you say, like at the moment, there's not enough funding to to provide what they all need. Is it does it, is this fundamentally a funding issue? Is that what's causing this this friction? Do you think? Well, I think I think there are I think there are two things here. So, for example, I mean, I know that I've very much talked about the fact that um, people go into politics for the right reasons, and and they're not just deliberately trying to um, hoodwink people. But equally, if if it is obvious that the funding is not there, so if it is obvious that the government is saying that they are providing six thousand pounds per child who has not got an EHCP. And they're clearly not, because the amount of money that's in the pot is not actually covering the number of kids who have that kind of SEN provision, which is which everybody knows the figures as to how many that is. Then that just needs to be resolved. Either the government needs to kind of say, actually, you know what, we're only going to provide 3,000. There would be uproar about that, because actually, supposedly, it would be half of what there was, but at least there'd be an element of honesty. Equally what there should actually be, because £6,000 has been the notional amount, that that should just actually be given. Um, and, and at the moment, what you find is that because it is not ring-fenced, the, and the, the, the schools are not having to spend the money on that, and they are equally having to find cash for a lot of different things with an ever smaller budget, they'll kind of go, well... Do we really need that TA? I see. So, so sorry to interrupt. When you say that the money's not ring fenced, when you said that earlier, I thought that you meant that that the LA hasn't got that money ring fenced. Well, that wouldn't make sense because they don't know how many kids there are. What you're saying is that once once a young person has been identified as being as as needing an EHCP, the school is then given the money by the local authority, but the, that that money is not ring fenced to be used for that kid to meet their their, their additional needs. Is that what you're saying? But for an EHCP, it is. Because basically the EHCP, it is a legally binding, it is a legally binding document. So, for example, if someone has an EHCP and it says within that EHCP that they need to go to that school, they need 30 hours of one-to-one -one care, it will be down to that. They, they will be given the money. They, the school will be given the money in order to fund that. I'm talking about those kids who do not have the EHCPs. So you've got one and a half million who who have SEN mm. you've got you've got four it's at 437,000 now who have the HCPs all right all of those other kids don't have the HCPs but they still have SEN and they are basically not given the, the money that is supposed to be there a six thousand pounds notional money is not there because is that the six? So, I, so is that six thousand pounds for a student with SEN, but that does that is not in need of an EHCP? Yes. Uh, really? So on top of because isn't it roughly about six thousand pounds that uh, that a school gets per pupil um, funding? And so it's sort of doubling that if if they have if they have like moderate learning dif difficulties, if they've got like there used to be a thing I don't know if it still is MLD or if they've got spoken language and communication needs, they get an additional six thousand pounds from local authority, and that that's the stuff that isn't ring fenced. Is that correct? 
It, it is, and you're right. It's it's um, £6,970, uh, which is indeed a 35% increase compared to 2010-2011, which is great. But then equally, you can always include inflation, especially now in that. Yeah. But at the end of the day, beyond that, it's what the government have deemed as the notional amount. Um, and as I say, if the notional amount needs to change, then the government needs to be honest about that. But all you have is a lot of parents at the moment thinking, well, my child is supposed to have a £6,000 um, notional funding for the for the fact that they have SEN. And it's just not there. Because, again, as I say, you know, the, the question that was put by Baroness Ritchie showed uh, in the in the House of Lords did actually show that it, it's it's only just over four thousand. So mm. it is equally, therefore, yes, it is a, a, a high amount in as much as it, you know, is an additional fund for the children who have SEN, but it's still a, a lot less than it should be. Mm. Um, and if if actually you found that a a neurotypical child, as opposed to getting six thousand nine hundred and seventy, only got four thousand. Well, you know that people wouldn't be very happy. Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. So, so we're still <laughs> we're still on early intervention and early diagnosis. I know I'm spending a while on this, but I'm just trying to get my head around it. Yeah. And so you you've painted a picture of very sort of patchy um, diagnosis um, for, across different across different areas, different local authorities, lots of different healthcare and and other kinds of professionals who are involved, and each of them have got different sort of areas that they focus on and so that you've got this very patchy network of people being being provi provided with what they need in terms of assessments and so on yeah um and so and you've also got this tension with with this idea that parents are having to fight for it yes and i, I mean that that does seem outrageous right that the idea that because you know to use a bit of a sweeping generalization the sort of the sharp elbowed middle class parents that they can sort of get their needs met and the other the other parents can't and and so like that's really outrageous isn't it like that that's something that like this shouldn't involve parents in some sense <laughs> this should be this should be about i mean i'm not saying that parents shouldn't get involved but they shouldn't have to get involved if their kid is going to to school or nursery or whatever and those people are trained in how to identify young people with sen and if there is some standardized assessment then there shouldn't be the the need for all of this um this you know friction with with parents in the background and you've identified that funding is a part of that, but it seems like it's a much bigger issue than just funding. It it is. I mean, basically, you 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 unfortunately you don't have an awful lot of confidence in the system as as well at the moment, um, because as you say, you you have to when you when you put together the forms for your child, you have to think about the worst things about your child, about one of the people in the world that you love the most. And that's heartbreaking for a parent because you don't want to have to kind of go through that horribleness. Um, equally, of course, you know, the local authorities, they have to have their forms, they have to have their way of, 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 of deciding. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it is very much, um, it is very much the, the parents who are on it 
who who are able to really make sure that their kids get the provision that they need it is the it is the parents who kind of go actually i'm sorry i i i don't i i will not give up and i will not um stop and you won't just send me away um and and it is it is just yeah it is just um one of those things whereas you know you you have a chaotic um you have a chaotic household or whatever it is uh, where the, the parents are in some way else under pressure and and yeah it will be the kid who suffers Okay, so onto funding. I know that we talked about this earlier, but I just want to, to recap. So you're saying that the government is currently supposed to provide any any young person with SEN or their school rather with this notional figure of six thousand pound per student, and this is for students without an, an EHCP. Yeah. And then in the notes that you very helpfully sent me through, you you mentioned that there was a question recently that was put down by Baroness Ritchie. Uh, yeah. In which it was it was disclosed that the allocation for children with SEND is about four point three billion, and if yeah. you divide that by the number of kids that that's supposed to cover, that comes to four thousand pound per kid. Yes. So there's so there's a shortfall between what the government says is the amount and the actual amount. And so you're saying that the, either the government needs to reduce the amount and be honest, but and accept the the political you know um, the blows that they'll take as a result of that. Or they need to to find an additional what looks like another two billion pounds worth of funding. Yes, and and and, e and equally though, um, well, what, what, I mean, equally, what what you have is you have the fact that the local authorities are not that they they, ha they have this discretionary they have this discretionary authority um, over what they basically pass on for SEN. So it's not entirely the government's fault, in as much as the government themselves are providing the school's budget, and this is what the government themselves will say, which is fair enough, fair enough response. Um, and it's down to the local authority to, to decide what they want to spend on SEN. That's why if they just cut out the middleman and the discretionary nature of it, so they just said, you know, in this local authority, there are this number of kids with SEN, and this is the amount of money, the notional £6,000. So, Mr. Local Authority Man, that's what you need to provide your local schools with in order to make sure that those children are getting the help that they need. Then that's what we're asking for, really. Um, but that, you see, the thing is, at the moment, obviously, with the cost of living crisis and the fact that the schools are finding their budgets being stretched and stretched and stretched, um, Unless you ring fence it, then then the money would end up going elsewhere, potentially end up going elsewhere, because they'd think to themselves, well, as I say, you know, we can get away with one TA as opposed to two. We can have this particular uh, TA dealing with two kids, not, you know, not one, all of that kind of thing. Or, or we don't really need to have um, this particularly sensory stuff within the school. What, you know, what, what? What quantifiable help does that provide for our children? All this kind of thing. So what you need, as I say, is the fact that 
at the moment, the local authorities, they only provide a certain amount of funding. So basically, as I said before, 78% of local authorities only allocate between 5 and 15%. And, and it, just it just proves that support is a total lottery. And, and whereas, you know, if you just said, this school has this number of children who have SEN, and you know that, the school knows how many children have SEN, um, and therefore, you know, this is the funding that they will get. But at yeah. the moment, you know, you have a child with SEN who's not getting the support, and therefore you have Ofsted who are not getting the grades that they want in order to give the school the grading that the school wants. And actually, you almost end up going down the wrong track, whereas if you had a child who was definitely going to get the support that they that they uh, were actually being allocated, then the school would be able to say, right, well, that's fine. We've got the money in order to do X, Y, or Z. And then, and then you'd be able to go down the path of actually the child getting the education they deserve, which will just help everybody because then the school will end up seeing the improvement. Be better in their year. They'll end up getting better grades. They'll end up having a more rounded education experience. They'll end up happier people. They'll end up being able to get jobs. They'll end up being able to contribute to society, and and all will be well with the world. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and so and so that leads us into the next thing, which is Ofsted, which is a way that you could introduce some accountability um, into the, into the way that that money is spent. Perhaps that if Ofsted looked at the the this the money that the, this non-binding um, money that schools receive with regard to how many of their students are on the SEN register. Um, to look at how the school is spending that, and if they can't, you know, um, give a good account of that, then the school would be downgraded, and that might help to sharpen the focus of of school leaders to say, actually, this is essentially ring fenced, even if not by the government or by the local authority within the school. The money that comes in, a hundred percent of that, is spent on SEN kids because you know otherwise we're going to get hauled over the coals for it. That would yeah. that seems like that would help. You think? Yeah, I mean, as I say, Ofsted would currently say, well, you know, if 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 a school does not provide SEN care for its SEN students, then we will not give it an outstanding grade. But it's it's more than that. At the end of the day, the focus at the moment on education is survival of the fittest. So that means that those outside mainstream education or with SEN just fall through the cracks. Um, I mean, for example, actually coming back to those outside mainstream education. Those outside mainstream education get no support from the Department of Education. Mm -hmm. If you homeschool your child or your child is off-rolled in any way, so that basically means that the, the school decides, you know, basically that they can't usually provide for that child. So the child would need to go elsewhere. Well, if there is a gap between when they're in one school and another, there is no provision. So the parents who may, may be able to do something themselves or may not, um, then that child will get no funding at all. So again, one of the one of the ideas that we actually had was ensure that the funding follows each child. Again, it's on the same principle. Ensure that the funding follows that child and that the parents then would actually be able to get the education that they feel is right for their child, maybe by having some kind of voucher system where 
if you wanted to provide online and blended learning, or if you wanted to go to a particular school or a particular tutor or whatever it was, you'd actually be able to use that funding because at the moment it's all on the parents, which seems unfair. But coming back to Ofsted, yeah, at the moment it's survival of the fittest. It's quite simply around the fact that that child, if they're not getting the grades, then, then the school is just more likely to think to themselves, well, okay, so which of the kids will get us the grades that they need in order to get whatever whatever grade it is from Ofsted? And, and again, you just find there's this differentiation because they don't necessarily have the money. They're trying to maximise what they do have. They're trying to think to themselves, okay, so how can we do the best for most and and it will be the same people, it will be the same kids, unfortunately, the, the kids with SEN who usually end up suffering. Okay, so so you're proposing that the money should follow the child in terms of, so, so one of the things you talked about there, so so for example, if a child is homeschooled, um, that, 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 that their parents should get funding yes. just in the same way that that, 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 that that child would be funded if they were in a school. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, isn't it absurd that basically if, if you know, a, a parent who is, is choosing to provide an education for that child, which again is therefore not theoretically putting pressure on the mainstream system, um, and yet they are totally left on their own and there is no legislation, there is no guidance that... Um, in in fact, I think it was actually said not recently in in the House of Commons. You know, one of the ministers stood up and said, "Well, you know, it's it's down to the local authority to to provide um, guidance, but it's not within legislation that they actually provide any finance." I mean, seriously. Mm. So, just playing the devil's advocate there for a moment, do you think that there might be that, that a reason that that a government minister might not want to? to put that one through is that it could incentivize the parents of children with SEN to take their kids out of school because then they would get £6,000 a year paid to them. Well, I suppose potentially. I hadn't quite thought about it like that. But equally, you know, it's... I mean, if, if, any, if any parent... Um, looks back to um, looks back to the COVID lockdowns, the school lockdowns. I mean, I I don't know. Um, doing homeschooling is is not exactly the easiest of job. And it, again, you know, <laughs> you I've, 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 I've I've done it with a child. I've done it with a child who has SEN. I mean, you know, again, someone would probably report on this and say, oh yes, well of course, you know, if your child has SEN, you could have put, you could have had your child in school. Yeah, I thought to myself, well. You know, at the end of the day, let's let's see how it all falls, and 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 we don't need to because we run our own business. We can we can provide the support here and and all of that kind of thing. And we're very lucky because it ended up working for us. I mean, um, but but you know, at one point I was heavily pregnant. What about what about that family where, you know, they they they're trying to do it and and their husband's away or they're a, they're a single parent family. A lot of kids with SEN are being off-rolled because, as I say, the, the schools are saying, well, you know, we can't provide you uh, with the support. And, and again, as I say, that's fair enough in as much as they don't have the cash to maybe. But, you know, surely it would be it would be easier all around. And it's just a principle that if a child is, is, is uh, if a child is being educated, then then they then they deserve the funding 
um, that to, I mean, I'll, I'll, on that front, I'm not even talking about SEN kids. I'm just talking about any, you know, any neurotypical child, really. You know, just the the, the parents are making a sacrifice here. You know, it's 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 not an easy it's not an easy choice. You only you make that choice because either you're a teacher yourself and you understand it, or you're committed to it, or you or bluntly you believe that you can do better than the state, and that's you know. Um, but then that's that's the reason why you know people have educational choice whether or not they decide to stay within the mainstream system or they they go independent or they do whatever they do and I think that's absolutely right and I think you you need those parents to be supported and at the moment children who are homeschooled all children who are homeschooled get no finance at all they are they are left to the parents you know and if if the parents can do stuff you know the parents can go off to such and such a place and they can provide the time and the cash to to you know take them to the science museum or or buy the microscope or whatever great and if they can't yeah well, yeah you know yeah right well it wouldn't be so hard would it to to like if they if they if they did have that concern and i'm not sure that it really is a concern in fact i think there's a good case for saying that you that, that parents should be given the funding um to de- to decide where they what they where they send their kids um more f- fully like not just not just for those with sen but for, for example you could that's that's a separate issue but you could give them vouchers right you could give them yeah. like free transport free access to to tuition like a certain amount of tuition a year for private tutors or for laptops or for educational resources or for you know like you could, it, i don't think that it would be that hard to administer um in in such a way that it was sort of um like cheat proof if you like well the, this is the thing i mean obviously i i'm i'm not saying that you know every child who who has um sen should you know if they're outside the mainstream system um they they would just be able to get their hands on x amount of cash of course because you know that that would just be how how would that even be you know, administered. You know, you can see what's going on at the moment with the the payments with respect to the energy companies. Some energy companies are sending it via direct debits. Others are doing postal vouchers and this and that. And some are getting lost and and people are, are not getting their vouchers and whatever. But some kind of system where if your child, I mean, because they were going to before they pulled the schools bill, they were going to have a list of homeschooled. I mean, they don't even have a list of homeschooled kids. Uh, centrally at all if they're going to have this list which i think would actually be reasonable there are some who homeschool their kids who don't think that it's reasonable because is that intervention well equally though if they actually had some kind of well we need to know this because then we'll be able to provide you with the support that you need then that would be a completely different a completely different take up than then well we want to have a look at you uh, and we want to check up on you, but but we're not going to give you any support, and it's yeah, not right. and meaningful. Can, yeah, and then I can see why parents who who are home educated are going. Well, why do you need to come in then, really? Um, because at the end of the day, you're not helping me. You're just looking at me. Yeah. Um, and and I can see why that really wouldn't appeal, especially if the child does have SEN, and it might have been a difficult decision for that child to actually be um, given uh that that you know that the parents who actually decide to go down that route well you know 
But as I say, if you couch it in the fact that those those parents are getting the support, well, you might suddenly find that actually a lot more people who are home educating their children are suddenly more supportive by their idea. And it wouldn't just because they're getting cash. Oh, aren't they? You know, it would be the fact that they actually feel that they're getting support from the system, that the system is going to give them the help. They're going to actually be able to access their GP, the SENCO. They're going to be able to access someone who's going to help with the child's mental health. They're going to have facilities or, or access to a particular school um, playground where there's facilities with um, sensory stuff, or they're going to be able to go into a lab, or they're going to be able to pay for that child to to have that, that tutor who is an SEN specialist or whatever it is. And suddenly that parent suddenly feels relieved that the system is much more relieved and the children are much more likely to thrive. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay, um, we're nearly there now. Let's just finish this wrap up. And then there's something else that I'd like to ask you if we could change the topic for the final for the final bit. Um, and so so there's, there's stuff around access to EHCPs yes. that we talked about earlier. Um, in the notes that you helpfully sent me through, you were talking about how there's uh, a huge delay in some areas with 27% of families uh, having to wait more than six months, yeah. even though the legal deadline is 20 weeks. Yeah. Um, and in 15 local authorities, only 25% of their plans are, are processed within that within that legal period. And in one local authority, only 1.5% of their plans are processed. So the you know the postcode lottery is coming through strong there. Um, and so, I mean, how do you fix that? You know, like that's like you can like put this like the, the, that local authority on the naughty step, or like like what does that look like? Do they get you know less funding the next year, which sort of makes the problem even worse? Like that's a tough that's a tough thing to crack, isn't it? It is, uh, but it, but actually, coming back to the the green paper, there was there was comment within the green paper that there should be this joined up and integrated technology system um, that basically standardises EHCPs. The key is in that actually, uh, it would mean that um, a a an EHCP what was requested would be standard. It would mean that it would take less time for parents together the information they need to submit to a local council to guarantee support. It would mean the local councils, there would be a place where all the stuff is kept so nobody could kind of say that they don't have a document when they do or, or they, you know, things because obviously, you know, you, you, you have systems that are different. Um, and basically it would mean that when a child has an issue, they would be a roadmap. So you'd know that, for example, coming back to the point before, that the particular person that needed to actually make a contribution to the AHCP would be able to be uh, allocated at, at a particular time, you know, in the same way if you're if you're project managing a project. So if you're you know that you're going to need the architects at the very beginning, you're going to need the person who's going to provide the tarmac, the person who's going to provide the foundations. Whatever it is, you know that at that particular point in time, that person is going to be needed. And it's the same principle here. If you actually have um, some kind of system where everything is together and it's all understood and digitized and and people can access it and the local authority can access it and you know that the information is just going to be added on you know if i'm if i'm putting together coming back to just general policy and and um political engagement 
one of my jobs for my clients is to basically have a database that I update as people comment on the issues that are affecting my client. That is a constantly working document. You know, I don't kind of at the beginning go, here, here you are, Mr. Client, here's your database, and we're going to work on that. Because at the beginning of, at the beginning of, um, you know, your political engagement, you know, in some in some cases, there are there's very little that's said. But as you talk to more people, there becomes more of a groundswell of what you actually want to talk about, what you want to hear. People become champions, and and from that conversations start. And it's it's a matter of um, basically making sure that you can actually have this document that's that's there that helps a child. Because at the end of the day, that's what you want to do. You want to help the child. That's the aim. And, and again, you know, that particular thing fits straight in with what they want to do. So there's no reason why they shouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and then the final thing is around transition. Yeah. Um, from from um, primary schools to secondary schools. Is that what you're talking about with regard to transition? Um, well, it's mainly around, uh, yeah, transition. And, and again, just actually if, you know, a child, a child having the EHCP, um, and, and getting the provision that they need. But interestingly, I was actually um, talking to the head of, of, of a school and essentially, um, you know, that it, often there isn't uh, so speech and language, which is so vital for some of these children uh, in primary, it just isn't provided in secondary. So there is, there is an issue around making sure that if a child has an issue, you know, within primary, that actually the support is maintained through secondary. Um, and again, if you actually, but again, the journey is often fragmented because, you know, a child goes to one primary school and then obviously they go and have a completely different career when they go to a secondary school. There's no connection necessarily between the two. You do have feeder schools probably between one school and another, but it's not, it's not always exact. It's not an exact science. So yeah, actually making sure that the child has the proper um, provision throughout their entire career, bluntly. And because if they don't, you know, you might find that a child is is developing really well up until a particular age, and then suddenly it all it all kind of um, stagnates a little bit. It all goes a bit flat, and that's not that surprising if the child isn't still getting the provision that they need. You know, every every child is different. Thank you for that. Thank you. That's very, very useful. And so just before we move on from SEN, what, what's what's the plan? <laughs> we were talking earlier about this tight temp, this tight timeline. We've got two years, probably perhaps less, between now and the next election. Um with your lobbying hat on, like what do, what does that look like? Are you just sort of continually just trying to to arrange meetings with people to sort of to, to get traction on this? Is, is there something that's more sort of systematic? Like, do you work through a process where you're like, okay, we're going to work with this group of, say, civil servants to work up policies over like an eight-week period? What does, it, what does it look like? And do you have any sort of plans in the pipeline with regard to SEN? Lobbying isn't an exact science. Um, and it's it's you you have you have your plan of action and your plan of action will include engaging with parliamentarians, benchmarking and and refining your message documents, um, and de developing potential statements that you you want people to kind of adopt. Um, and basically, so so 
what, what, what I'm going to be looking to do is essentially ensuring that um, the, the subjects around SEN that we're concentrating on, so, so as I say, it, if effective, uh, effective identification of, of, and, uh, of children, making sure that they get the diagnosis they need, essentially ensuring that there is, there is not a fragmented system, that those outside mainstream education get the education that they deserve, that they're not forgotten um, and that they are provided with the opportunities the best for them. Then basically effectively portraying these kind of images, these issues to the, to the government, um, engaging with that government and trying to see that there is behavioural change and government pledges on these issues. That's kind of that's kind of where we're where we're looking. And and as I say, depending on the issues and 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 how you how you judge um, what what's kind of coming up, um, who you speak to exactly will will change. Um, and and not always be the same for one client as another or uh, one issue, um, but essentially you're 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 you. It's all results driven, in my mind. Uh, it shouldn't be about talk. It should be about making sure that what you actually say um, changes and changes the lives of those children. Yes, thank you for that. I found that very illuminating. As I say, this is not something, uh, to my shame, really, this is something that has, has been not on my radar enough. I've heard people saying for a good while now that uh, the, the current state of SEN provision is the thing that is most in need of attention. Um, yeah. And, you know, like, like in the middle of all of these, this other stuff that's happening, there's obviously been lots of political tumult of late um, and we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis and, you know, round the, you know, it looks like we're maybe heading towards a general strike, teachers striking, lots of other public sector workers striking and the teachers got a pay deal this year, which meant that that, that took even more out of school budgets and school budgets are in bad shape, you know, like schools that have sort of been put to the bone, their, their budgets over years of austerity have had to, you know, have had to having to find another like three, I was listening to one interview with a head teacher who's having to find three quarters of a million pounds worth of savings over the, over the summer. And they've got very limited number of options there. They can, they can stack their teachers and, and try to, you know, get kids into, into the largest possible class sizes that they can. They can get rid of, you know, if you've only got 12 students doing German, say, or food tech or whatever it might be, you cut those subjects where there isn't, you know, 30, 32 kids in every classroom and you squeeze them in. Um, or, you you know, you cut back on buying stuff. But most of the school's, most of the school's budget, as I'm sure you know, goes on um, on the staff's wages and so there's there's very little wriggle room you know and you can see where the like the pressure that's coming down to bear on that on that money that that gets given for for sen students you know is they're living through very difficult times um and it's it's hard to see i mean it, it feels like like it's it's almost like an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do, but it feels like there needs to be more money. <laughs> it seems like if there was more money in, like you said earlier, like the, the, in the government's own sums, there's like a two billion pound shortfall. Yeah. I mean that that's huge in a in a like given that the the budget is currently four four billion, and this is just for for EHCP uh, pupils. Um, 
it feels like more money would really help. But I guess everybody's saying that, right? And we're in a, you know, we're in a period where it sounds, you know, Jeremy Hunt is sounding increasingly like George Osborne at the moment, right? Talking about um, finding efficiency savings across the board. Yeah. Um, these are tough times. They are. They are. And and it, as 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 you might say, for a number of different sectors and a number of different ways, it's it's the marginalised that that are hit the most often. Yes. And SEN are marginalised um, because they're still they're still not getting the support they need, and they're still not getting the um, they're still not ending up having decent jobs and as i said before it's one of those things where you know it's it's never brought quite home to roost quite as much as when you know that you know uh it's it's your child who's also on that list as it were but equally my child is lucky enough that you know she's had the interventions and all the rest of it and i just i just want every, i just want all the other children who are out there to be able to have the same opportunities The other question I want to ask you is about um, moving to a cross-party um, approach to creating education policy, because this is something that has come up many times in recent years. Recently, there was a, there was a book that was written called About Our Schools by uh, Sir Tim Brighouse and Mick Waters, and they made a lot of recommendations, and one of them was uh, we need to move to, to – we need to essentially decouple – education policy from um from the electoral cycle essentially for, like, so that we're not having questions like this like oh no there's going to be an election in two years so we can't help the special needs kids like that's an outrageous situation to be in and it doesn't have to be that way we could set up a cross-party like or like something that works a bit like a select committee, but where people are appointed for whatever it might be, five years, and and that that and maybe they can reapply and and have you know two stints in that job before moving on, a bit like the U.S. presidency say, and 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 you could have a ten-year plan, right? And that that, that cross-party group could work with, for example, SEN specialists to to put together a really coherent strategy to address all of these problems that we've just been talking about and to to actually make a plan to make sure that this gets better over a 10-year period, say. And you could say the same for, for every aspect of, of education policy, right? For further education and for early years and for mental health and attendance and, and so on and so on. And it seems to me that, that, that this is the most important thing and oh, oh just quickly also the, the recent the, the, the times education commission um they also did this big piece of work which you may have seen recently and they came up with 10 recommendations and one of their recommendations was we need to move to a cross-party way of of organizing education policy um and it seems to me that this is the number one thing that needs to happen because whatever happens with regard to SEN, right? Let, let imagine that the most amazing thing 
possible happened and that all of your lobbying efforts were came in your wildest wishes came true and all of the problems that we've outlined today were fixed right and then and then in two years time there's likely to be a change of government or even if there's not a change of government there's likely to be a change of secretary of state because they you know last about two years generally which is not enough time <laughs> to see anything through um and it seems to me that there's no point almost in in lobbying i don't know if this is maybe this is putting it too too bluntly but that there's not that much point in in lobbying on these other fronts on early years on sen on whatever it might be mental health given that in 2 years time under this top down sort of electoral cycle system we'll have a new incumbent in sanctuary buildings they'll come up with some new policies they'll probably get rid of most of the ones that they inherit and the whole cycle will go around again and it seems to me that until we can do this thing where we figure out how to move education policy out of this short termism thinking into some sort of long term cross party approach that the, the, there's almost no point in addressing these other areas because there's, there's, it, it's very unlikely that they're going to lead to lasting policies that bring about the changes that we want to see. And, and I mean, you, you could. So, so my first question is: that's like the, the proposition. You can agree with that or disagree. Do you think that we should move to a cross-party way of, of organizing education policy? And the second part of the question is: <laughs> assuming that that you do see that there's some sense in this. How do we do that? Like, what's the what's the mechanism? What's the what are the pressure points? Do you think, as a political insider, is do you think it's do you think it's a hopeless like game to be trying to play? And if not, how do you think we might persuade an incoming or an incumbent Secretary of State actually that their legacy should really be this devolution to a cross-party system? Well, the thing is, uh, so. I can I can see the appeal of the idea. I think I think it is important that education policy as a whole is something that has cross-party support. Um, and there is a bit of a tendency for people who kind of come in to scrap whatever's happened before in order that uh, they can put their mark on whatever it is that they're supposed to be doing. But Again, coming back to the point that MPs aren't stupid and um, they they do actually see where some things are going to be beneficial. Um, I think um, I think there should be cross-party support. I think that um, I think that if if you actually took out the again coming back to this abuse and the uh, silo nature of politics and I'm right and you're wrong and I'm going to show you're wrong by doing something to show that I'm right when I get into power. If you took away all that nonsense, you'd actually have much more of an ability for people to work together for the benefit of the child. Yeah, right. The, pro the problem with trying to separate it off is, is you then end up with just a series of quangos Quangos basically are essentially bodies that are not are independent. Um, they're run by people who are usually within a particular type of industry. They're usually very bloated. They are funded from the taxpayers' purse. You find that people um, 
need more endlessly and I'm not saying that they don't because obviously I want children to get more but you know the 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 mechanisms taking end up taking up all the cash I think it's I think for me it's more around just as I say um people growing up and understanding that they are just supposed to think about uh, solutions to problems. I mean, this is one of the things that, you know, I've come across a lot when, you know, and and again, is something that I, I try and mitigate before I get there. Okay, so it's fine that you're talking about this. How would you actually improve it? If you had more people looking to improve it in the system that we have, as opposed to just bitching about how it's all wrong equally, then that would be good too. So actually looking at how, so for example, one of the things that I'm doing at the moment is an impact assessment along all of these, all of these different areas. So I'm saying, you know, what is a financial and emotional cost if we don't do this? What is a financial and emotional cost if we actually do what I'm talking about? Which which wins? If you took a much more strategic look at things, as opposed to, as I say, just saying, you know, this is my view, that's your view, which, you know, we, we, everything is so marginalised and sectorised. I mean, I mean, I, I, the only person who knows how I voted in the Brexit election, the Brexit referendum is my husband. And that is the way that it is staying. Um, but I have seen friends who I'm thinking of a particular friend who lost the friendship of someone who had been their best man, had known them since they were four, all because they had differing views on this one issue. And I think that's that's actually the problem. You've got so many people now kind of going, well, I can't agree with you because you're to the left or you're to the right. Um, you know, I've always worked very much cross-party. The leader of Merton Council, where I was a councillor, um, I ended up, I, I wasn't actually allowed to stand in the area in which I lived because I was too young and it was too, uh, it was too Tory, it was too safe. So I ended up standing somewhere where I didn't live uh, against someone who had a safe seat at the time. I got a 13% swing. So the guy, Stephen Alabritis, who ended up as leader of Merton Council, had to come in in a by-election a year later. I've worked cross-party with him on a number of different issues, you know, for 20 years now. It's not rocket science. You just actually, again, you put aside your, uh, you put aside your um, egos and you just think, you know, what's what's best on this issue? So I do understand what you're saying and I understand what the times is you know what what they're saying as well but the problem is that you do end up getting into all sorts of issues around how it's going to work the money that that's going to cost the all of the various different mechanisms that are going to be had to put into place whereas actually if everybody just grew up and and just thought about the children and and how it can actually work in the in the way that we have you know I, I went through earlier on it's not like a piece of legislation could just be thrown through parliament really and just you know you, you you decide one day that you're going to ban chicken and the next day chicken's banned you know you have to go through all of these processes use the processes to make better legislation that's my job as a as a polit as, as a political lobbyist to help them make 
better legislation. And I think that's the key. Yeah, I mean, I can see your point, but but like, so so it reminds me of of like the difference between, um, you know, you know, like uh, like trying to trying to go for a run every day, right? And you think, oh yeah, some days I'm really motivated to go for a run, yeah. and other days you just can't be bothered. Yeah. But if you put a system in place, like if you have a system whereby, for example, you keep your trainers by your bed, and so every morning you wake up and put your trainers on straight away, and then you're like, all right, I'm halfway out the door, like I'm done. So you can put a system in place that makes the decision easier right and i think that see like you were saying sort of you're essentially saying that you want everybody you used to pray to people to grow up to do their job properly to be responsible to not sort of fall into these these uh unhelpful ways of this sort of cat and mouse politics but it feels like that's sort of unrealistic because of because of human nature and the fact that if that if people did try really hard to sort of to do the grown up thing for a while they would lapse after a while and it feels like doing something like moving towards and i don't think it would necessarily be a, a quango because a quango is sort of like sitting sitting outside of like an ngo essentially isn't that what a quango is like a quasi ngo yeah. like it's sort of yeah. a, a non-governmental organization now, i was thinking that this would be and 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 then, then the quangos are usually don't don't include politicians among them is that is that correct quangos is, is sort of an, an extra governmental Yes. body yeah yeah so so this would be different this would be a, a cross-party group and i don't know if the, i don't know if you even know if there's a precedent for it it's sort of it's not that dissimilar to a to a parliamentary select committee but they are usually sort of about about overseeing the work of, of government departments and and sort of you know holding them to account sort of thing right and calling them to questions and so on this would be more a a policy making role right to 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 arrive at, at policies and and also you know that would include working with people um beyond um you know beyond politics but um i don't know i mean it just feels like it feels like if we if we did that if we if we were able to move to a system where we had a 10 year plan and it wasn't partisan politics it was sort of you know um, agreed, uh, you know, arriving at policy decisions through democratic means around this decision-making table, it feels like that would be the equivalent of of uh, putting your shoes by your bed. You know, it's like you're, you're setting the system in place whereby people will behave better around education policy, will have, will have better policy, will have better implementation, because all the heat has gone out of it. And in some sense, it's sort of become quite a boring administrative you know technocratic process of like continually orienting yourself towards the least bad way of you know meeting the needs of sen kids or whatever it might be do you know what i mean I, I, yeah i do and i think i think it's a very nice idea and i think that if someone came up with a way that it would work um then then that would be marvelous because i think you know it's one of those things that, yeah, you 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 do need you need someone to go in there and and not always rip out what the previous person did. Um, yeah, knowing knowing how bloated these things can get. If it was if it was in some way within within the governmental system, in as much as it was within Parliament, and it was then then that's great. But you do, as you pointed out, you do have the education select committees. Um, but it, it, it and, and and how and how it would work alongside that, or you know. But then equally, 
you know, where do you stop in some ways? Because someone would be able to say, well, you know, should do the same for health. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe all of these things should be devolved. I, I think, I think to be honest, it's it's a lovely idea, but as as these lovely ideas are, um, it's it's a matter of making it work. And if something like that could work and benefit the children, I'm all for it. I, I am I am not, I, I've never been. Um, one of these people who kind of goes, these, these these are my rules, and if I don't stick, you know, I've got to stick to these rules as to how it all runs and how it all is. I work within the process that I'm given. If that process works better, you know, fine by me. As long as it, as long as, as long as it actually does show results, because that to me is the key thing. You know, just changing equally, just changing it for changing's sake is is. You know, and taking up a whole load of money and a whole load of time and a whole load of effort in order to put something like that in place. You know, it's like, for example, one of the other subjects we work on is business rates. You know, there is a lot of call at the moment, and we've we've made the call reform business rates. It's thirty-two billion pounds worth of of cash before you have the reliefs, so twenty-five billion pounds worth of government income. You're going to have to provide a good way of making sure. That, they, that the government knows that they're actually going to get it because, you know, they're going to need that income. You just saying, get rid of business rates is great. What are you going to replace it with? So I think if, if someone could come up with a structure that worked, that wasn't too onerous, then, as I say, marvellous. I'm all ears. I really am. But um, having worked in this industry for a long time, um, I just have a little bit more cynicism that these things aren't going to end up being... A, a, another version of what we've got that's all but but if it works brilliant i have no problem with that mm. yeah well so so this is something that i'm actually i've, I've been thinking almost endlessly about it <laughs> and in fact indeed yesterday i've not don't think i've told you this that I, I had a ted talk came out and it's called essentially a slightly different idea it's this idea of, of vertical slice politics where you take a cross-section so in a school where the, the decisions are often made by senior leaders um right and the same in hospitals senior ma hospital managers and senior clinicians make all the decisions in society a small number of politicians at the top of the system make all the decisions and actually it doesn't work <laughs> like top down implementation top-down decision making where all the decisions are made by the people at the top of the system often doesn't work simply for the very fact that it, the decisions are made by the people at the top of the system and they don't have an oversight they don't know what it's like to be a kid with sen or or a parent or a patient with whatever you know the condition it is in the nhs um, and if you had a vertical size system of politics where you could have a cross-section of people sitting around the decision-making tables actually expanding it so it's, this is going against what i was just talking about about keeping it within parliament actually figuring out a, a, a fair and transparent way to appoint people to this process so that you have a rich diversity of experiences and and expertises if you like coming down to bear on the policy making process and not just policy making but overseeing the execution of those policies um that's a whole that's a that's a, i'll have to get you back on for a whole other conversation about that but uh, I'll send you the link, Vertical Size Politics. I'd really love, love to hear your thoughts on that as an idea. Yeah. Now, and 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 I and I think I and again coming back to actually where we started, um, you know, is lobbying a dirty word? Um, that's kind of why we're here because it again comes back to the fact that 
you know, politicians um, are, they are not always uh, experienced in the areas that they end up running. And, and, I, and I do absolutely agree with you that therefore you need, you need mechanisms. And this is one of the things that I'm, I, I hope I've very much kind of been, been saying through this conversation that, you know, you need to have uh, the involvement of, of people who know what they're talking about and can actually provide the mechanisms for people to, for, for, for government legislation to be achieved because words mean nothing, action means everything. Um, so, so absolutely, one one hundred percent on that, um, because because you know otherwise um, it it is just all a all a bit of a waste of time because you just end up endlessly going round and round uh, a conversation and and again you 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 do need you do need action. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's good to have you on board. <laughs> uh, we just got to persuade the other eight billion people now that this is the way to go. Um, but it, it really does seem to be, even though it's a bit pie in the sky and it feels a bit massive. Um, whenever I mention it to people, and I've had an amazing feedback. This this. This TED Talk has been seen by like 20,000 people already. It's not even been out for a day yet. And I've had loads of really positive feedback. Like people really seem to warm to this idea of like essentially people-powered politics where politicians are still, you know, in the room, as it were. It's not It's not like a, a total like, you know, anti-politician idea. Um, you need to have people who are sort of organizing this process, but if we were able to move to the to more of a vertical slice approach, you would you would, a you get better decision making because it combats groupthink, and b you bring people with you, you know, because um, people know that they're represented at the at, in in the corridors of power, as it were, um, and they they come with you on the journey, so you don't have to have that fight against the resistance because people can see that this is a better way of doing things. It it well it is it is all about confidence within the system and at the moment unfortunately there is very little confidence within the system um for for parents and and people who are um involved in SCN um, and that does absolutely need to change yes absolutely well that sounds like a good note to to draw this to a conclusion on Fiona thank you very much for you sharing your time with me this afternoon uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add or ask of our listeners? Is there anything that you would uh, anything that you would like to point them in the direction of um, that's happening currently or in the future? Um, well, I mean, if, if if anybody is interested in getting in touch, um, the company that I I have is called Keystone Consulting. Um, just Google us, uh, Keystone Consulting Public Affairs. Um, and as I say, we are. Um, we just want to make sure that people do get representation in Parliament and people understand how important po politics is, because it is, and and it can all seem a little bit overwhelming, but it's it's just important to be part of the process, because if you're not part of the process, someone else will be, and you 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 want to make sure that your own position is 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 listened to and and um, understood by those who are in power. Absolutely. And thank you for helping me to understand that not all lobbyists are evil. <laughs> Who knew? I know. Who knew? Yeah, there you go. You learn something new every day.
Well, as I say, I'm I'm just I'm I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that we've had this conversation, and uh, I hope that the listeners have been able to um, get some get some information that's helpful to them from it. I'm sure they will have done. Thank you so much, Fiona. All right. Cheerio. Thank you. Okay. Cheerio. Bye. Times and measure of change.